I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is not going to be the text from which I will be preaching, but it sets the context for what we're going to consider this morning about the Good Shepherd who cares for his sheep. Verse 1, I'll be reading through verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. And my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even uh, become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because, or excuse me, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I shall demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I shall deliver my flock from their mouth, and they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground, and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them 
with judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, what a frightful text of Scripture this is, how it condemns false shepherds, how it shows them to be users rather than carers of the flock of God. Lord, we're to be caretakers. We're to seek the sheep. We're to love them. We're to seek the wandering. We're to restore them. Lord, pray. I pray for myself and I pray for Pastor Randy. Pray for all shepherds of the flock of God that we would be faithful to them, caring for them, not feeding ourselves from them. But we would seek and we would save under the under the authority of Christ and by the grace of Christ. So Lord, hear us as we come to you this hour, as we open our Bibles again to another text of Scripture that certainly uh, has this text of Scripture in mind. Lord, help us to understand, help us to feed upon the truth which we're going to consider, that we might be strengthened in the inner man. If there be any here, that are lost sheep, that you would go forth by your Spirit and you would find them and you would bring them to Christ and grant them the gifts of faith and repentance and bring them into the kingdom of God, no longer wandering and lost, but found and saved. And for your people, help us to take the lessons from what we're going to consider this day, that we would have a heart for the lost. We would seek them and point them to Jesus Christ and we would rejoice in their salvation, even as if it were our own. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We've commenced a study of these three parables, actually three variations of one parable about the lost and the found. I'll read the first seven verses. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him, that is, to Jesus. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Last week, we began opening up this passage. We looked at the 
first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, and we saw the uh, approaching sinners, those that came to the Lord Jesus, and we saw their identity, that they were tax gatherers and sinners. They were the low life. They were regarded as the riffraff in Israel. It was they who came to see Jesus, and we saw their interest in him. They were coming near, and they wanted to listen to him because he had the words of life. And then we considered the reproaching scorners, Jesus' censors. We saw their identity. We considered who they were. They were both the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the religious leaders. They should have been the shepherds in Israel that Ezekiel speaks of. And we saw their criticism, their grumbling, and their slander. First of all, they criticized Jesus' seekers. They referred to them as sinners with a sneer upon their lips. And they not only criticized Jesus' seekers, they also criticized the Savior. This man receives and eats with them. And having seen the approaching sinners and the reproaching scorners, we saw the approachable Savior last Lord's Day. Now this week, we come to consider the first of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the parable of the lost coin. And following that, we will consider the parable of the lost son. Rejected and rebuffed by Israel's religious leaders, the outcasts of Jesus' day found the kindness and receptivity of our sympathetic Savior positively magnetic. They were drawn to him. But the very receptivity that attracted self-conscious sinners repelled proud and self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. And what so irked the scribes and Pharisees was Jesus' ready reception of what in other nations are called untouchables. Indeed, the word receives here in verse 1 is a very strong one. It conveys the idea of accepting or welcoming someone. It, it conveys the idea of rolling out the red carpet for them. We read of Martha, the same word, welcoming Jesus into her home. And unlike the respectable class in Israel, Jesus didn't treat these tax collectors and sinners as castaways. He didn't stand aloof from them. He didn't hold them at arm's length, but rather he spoke with them. He sat with them and he even ate with them, speaking of the most intimate kind of human fellowship. That Jesus sought out scandalous sinners suggested to these religious leaders that he shared in or at least was sympathetic toward their sins. The false shepherds pictured in Ezekiel chapter 34 anticipated the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. And instead of extending mercy, they only increased the misery by failing to seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. They dropped the ball. They didn't take care of the needy that were around them. 
Rather, they held themselves aloof, kept their nose up, probably plugging it when they walked by them. You know, we can be that way too. We shouldn't be so hard on the scribes and Pharisees because that self-righteous attitude exists within all of us and it rears its ugly head in the best of us. Well, Jesus never made light of sin in his ministry to sinners. Indeed, he challenged his hypocritical accusers. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? You see, no one who knew our holy Lord could justly accuse him of sin. Ironically, Jesus' spotless purity was a living protest against the pollution of the very ones to whom he ministered. They didn't regard him as a sinner. They regarded him as a savior. And yet these penitent sinners believed his message of mercy, a message that inspired hope in their hearts. And so they followed him who both showed them and saved them from their sin. If you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. Christ has showed you your sin. Instead of running away from him, you ran toward him and he swept you up in the arms of saving mercy and love. And that's what many of these tax collectors and sinners did. It doesn't mean that Jesus saved every one of them. Some of them, no doubt, were hostile. But some, their hearts were changed by grace and they were found, as it were, seated in their right, hand, right mind at the feet of Jesus Christ. So last week we introduced the parables of the lost and found. This week we will consider the parable of the lost sheep. Let me read again these verses. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? He speaks to these scribes and Pharisees and says, if you lose a sheep, wouldn't you go after it? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you're going to go after a dumb sheep, shouldn't I go after dumb sinners that don't know their left hand from their right morally? And when he is found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then he gives the application. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, actually, that parable divides all of mankind into two categories. Those who know they are sinners and delight in the salvation offered by the shepherd and those who say, me, I, they might need salvation, but I don't. We're going to look this morning before we come to concluding applications. Three points. First of all, we're going to consider the plight of the lost sheep. And then we're going to look at the pity of the seeking shepherd. And then the party of the jubilant company. Notice, first of all, 
the plight of the lost sheep. Uh, understand again, beloved, that our Savior never flatters sinners. Notice how he describes us. He doesn't depict us as noble creatures like lions or eagles, but instead with a very unflattering title. He calls us sheep. Sheep are not hardy creatures, nor are sheep known for their smarts. In fact, a sheep's stupidity is proverbial. We sinners, like stupid sheep, are wayward, wandering creatures inclined to get ourselves into all manner of trouble at every turn. Listen to this old writer who toured Israel and wrote a large volume. This is the volume one of The Land in the Book by Mr. Thompson. He traveled around and he took notes. And he writes, Some sheep always keep near the shepherd and are his special favorites. Each of them has a name to which it answers joyfully, and the kind shepherd is ever distributing to such choice portions which he gathers for that purpose. These are the contented and happy ones. They are in no danger of getting lost or into mischief, nor do wild beasts or thieves come near them. The great body, however, are mere worldlings, intent upon their own pleasures or selfish interests. They run from bush to bush, searching for variety or delicacies, and only now and then lift their heads to see where the shepherd is, or rather where the general flock is, lest they get so far away as to occasion remark in their little community or rebuke from their keeper. Others, again, are restless and discontented, jumping into everybody's field, climbing into bushes, and even into leaning trees, whence they often fall and break their limbs. These cost the good shepherd incessant trouble. Then there are others, incurably reckless, who stray far away and are often utterly lost. I have repeatedly seen a silly goat or sheep running here and there and bleating piteously after the lost flock, only to call forth from their dens the beasts of prey or to bring up a lurking thief who quickly quiets its cries in death. That well pictures us, doesn't it? There's a reason why Jesus calls us sheep, and he doesn't call us eagles. He doesn't call us lions. Fact is, we're conceived as sinners. We go astray as soon as we leave the womb. We are cursed with a sinful wanderlust. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29. Behold, I have found only this. The great student Solomon writes, When I concluded my studies, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Isaiah states our case poignantly and plainly. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. As sinners, we don't seek God's way, we seek our own way. You know, I can make it without God quite well, thank you. I know where I'm going, I know where I'm going to arrive. Oh, yeah? 
As sinful sheep, we are not merely wayward, we are willfully wayward. We don't want to know, let alone follow the right way. We love afar to roam. Says Spurgeon, to be lost from Christ may seem to you who are careless and thoughtless a trifling matter. If the wandering sheep could have spoken, it might have said, I do not belong to the shepherd. I know that he values me and that he is seeking me because I am his, but I do not care about that. No poor sheep. If you had been the shepherd, you would have cared. And poor sinner, if you did not know even a little of what Christ feels, you would also begin to care for your own soul. And brethren, we are more than foolish sheep. A lost sheep may accidentally wander back to the shepherd, but no sinner accidentally comes to Christ. We will not come to him that we might have life. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God because the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapters 3 and 8. You see, people, our case is desperate. On our own, we are without God and we are without hope. On our own, we will most certainly perish. On our own, we'll be like that wandering sheep. We may fall into a pit or be eaten by wolves. You see, the shepherd must seek the sheep or the sheep will die. We too need a shepherd to seek us if we would not perish in our sin. We must be sought by the only Savior of lost men. So that's the plight of the sheep, lost sheep briefly. Notice, secondly, the pity of the seeking shepherd. We are sinners who can never recover ourselves. No religion will do it. Only God can do it. We will never find our way home to God. We cannot, nor do we want to. We don't want to come to God God's way. Ever since the fall, we have been running from God. If we're going to be saved, God must take the initiative. He must seek us and he must save us. You see, the glory of the gospel message is not that sinners seek God, but that God seeks sinners. God in heaven dispatched a shepherd to come and to seek wayward rebel sheep. Consider whom it is that seeks sinners. It's not Michael the archangel that stoops to rescue rebel sinners. No, we, we need to look still higher. He is the exalted eternal son of God from heaven who came to seek and to save the wayward and the wandering. And beloved, this is no drudgery to him. Instead, it was for the joy set before him that he came from glory to lift us up from the moral dung heap of our sin, to wash us in his blood, to make us eternal trophies of his saving grace. You see, such knowledge is too deep, too broad, too high, too marvelous to comprehend that a God who's been offended by our sins actually seeks to save us. 
1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. It wasn't, it wasn't the brain trust that ordinarily comes to Christ. It's ordinary garden variety people like you and me. Not many mighty. It's not the who's who that often come to Christ. It's the nobodies. Not many noble. No, we're not high-born. We're most of us low-born. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is to God's glory that he pities rebel sinners. We will wear out age after age praising God that he should become man and sacrifice himself to save the likes of you and me. We're never going to lose that wonder. It's only going to be increased over time. Now, as we consider the pity of the seeking shepherd, notice four points. First of all, his seeking is selective. Notice that he leaves the 99 in the wilderness to pursue one lost sheep. He didn't think, that's only one of nine, that's only 1% loss. I can let him go. No. No, he goes after him. So who are the 99 left behind in the wilderness? Well, I think the answer is clear. Remember to whom he is speaking. They are those who regard themselves as righteous, who acknowledge no need for repentance. They represent the scribes and the Pharisees, those who don't see their need to turn from their sin to God. They're not sinners, remember? Indeed, that's the way we're born into this world. God has to open our eyes to see our sin. Surely all men are sinners who have wandered from God, but only those who see their sin, welcome a seeking Savior. Only they feel their need of his mercy and grace. The good shepherd leaves the self-righteous in the wilderness to feed themselves on their self-delusion. He turns from them to seek the self-accusing, to rescue those who know themselves to be lost. Remember, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, it's not those who think they're well who go see a doctor. No, it's those who know they're sick and they agree with the diagnosis of the doctor. I am in a terrible strait. I need your doctoring if I'm going to live. You see, the Savior must seek us since we apart from his effectual grace can, neither can or will seek him. He came to save the sheep that were given to him by the Father. 
John 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So his seeking is selective. It's not the 99, it's the one. It's not the scribes and the Pharisees, not the self-righteous, but those who are self-condemned. They know their sin. Notice, secondly, his seeking is steadfast. His seeking is steadfast. Doesn't he go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Notice the shepherd's perseverance. No sheep is so far gone, but that Jesus will follow after it. He'll inquire about it. He looks for it. He seeks until he finds it. Nothing deters him. Nothing dissuades him. Nothing distracts him. Not Satan's temptation. Not the world's distractions. Not his sheep's deviations. Nothing will throw him off their track. No wide ocean, no high mountain, no howling wilderness, but that he will follow his lost sheep there. Didn't he come from heaven to seek such sheep? Didn't he enter the realm of of sin, degradation, and death to seek his sheep? He will sooner die than to lose his sheep. In fact, he dies so that he might gain his sheep. Even when to all appearances his cause is lost, he keeps searching. Not one sheep given him by the Father will ever remain lost. However far it strays, he will certainly and surely be found. Thirdly, his seeking is successful. Verse 5. What a touching scene greets us in verse 5. The shepherd searches until his lost sheep is found. What trauma his sheep may have faced in all of his wanderings from the shepherd. Maybe the poor creature lies bruised and bleeding at the bottom of some gully. It may be hopelessly tangled in a briar thicket. Perhaps it lies helpless and exhausted before some stalking lion. Mercy and might meet as the valiant shepherd affectionately scoops up the wayward sheep whom he tenderly lays upon his shoulders and then makes for home. How gentle is our heaven-sent shepherd. He greets the weak and weary lamb with no scalding rebuke. He doesn't drive it before him or even demand that it follow him. What does he do? He takes it up and he lays it on his shoulders and carries it home. Our good shepherd's search and rescue mission always proves successful. His grace is greater than all our sin. His love melts our hard heart and subdues our stubborn will. He will not quit seeking until all his father's sheep are safely brought home to glory. He will keep searching until all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. Well, you might ask, well, when is a sinner found by Christ? What does that look like? 
Well, from the human perspective, it takes place when the lost sinner seeks Jesus and lays hold of him by faith. From the divine side, the sinner is found by Christ when the Father effectually calls him to Jesus. John 6, verse 44. No one, Jesus said, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The lyrics of an anonymous hymn writer I've quoted before on this in this regard recognizes Christ's searching always precedes our finding that saving faith is our response to God's effectual grace. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. So his seeking is selective, it's steadfast, it's successful. Notice, fourthly, his seeking is sensible. His seeking is sensible. What do I mean by sensible? Well, our Savior feels the loss of his sheep. It's what moved him to go after it. Keep in mind that lost sinners are not lost to themselves so much as they are lost to God. It is his sheep that have wandered off. In the story of the lost coin, he is the woman who ardently searches for the lost piece of money. In the story of the lost son, he is the father whose heart aches for his wayward boy who abandoned his home to run off to the far country and into sin. And in all three parables, the emotion of joy at the recovery of the lost is underscored. Our triune God, brethren, I say this because I believe the Bible teaches it, is not emotionless. Now it is true that events in this world do not change his heart, the heart of him who is unchangeable, yet changes in men reveal his heart. Now I know that we can press a human analogy too far, but the Bible teaches that God is supremely and perfectly and unchangeably happy in himself. He didn't need to create the world. He didn't need to create men to be happy. He created all these things for his own glory. But we would deflect the force of these parables at least if we view God as without emotion. Our God possesses infinitely holy emotion, and he expresses that emotion in his dealings with his people. We read that when God could bear the suffering of his people no longer, Judges 10, 16, he sent judges to rescue them. Isaiah speaks of God's affliction over his afflicted people in chapter 63 and verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. And brethren, we could multiply similar statements 
in the Bible. Understand two things about God's affections or emotions. First, our God is without human emotions. These are divine emotions. Jesus, as the God-man, experienced both divine and human emotions. Much less does God possess sinful human emotions. That's all we know, is that's what we are. We are sinners, and our emotions are touched by our sin. We love things we shouldn't, and we don't love things we should. We're happy about things we should be sad about, and we're sad about things that should give us joy. But the God in whose image we are made is not devoid of emotion. Pity for the plight of sinners moved him to send his only and beloved son into this wicked world to recover his beloved sheep. Indeed, these sheep he has loved with an everlasting love. It is these that he draws with loving kindness to his son, our Savior. One reason why this parable is so powerful, is precisely because of the divine-like emotion it kindles within our breasts in contemplating the terrible plight of the lost and then rejoicing when we experience their rescue. It touches a chord within our hearts, does it not? The prophet Hosea describes God as a wounded lover, a bereaved husband who keenly felt the loss of his wife and lover Israel. Hosea 11 and verse 8. Listen to what he says, or what God says through Hosea. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are the the other cities in the plain, like Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Either God is expressing something akin to grief over the apostasy of his people, or words have no meaning. Admittedly, brethren, this is a high mystery. We must tread reverently because we are standing on holy ground. This mystery demands our awe and reverence, our our humble worship. Bless God that he so loved the world that he sent his son to rescue his lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. We read of Christ's joy in saving his sheep. The writer to the Hebrews puts it in these words, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice further that the rejoicing shepherd shares his joy. We've seen the plight of the lost sheep, the pity of the seeking shepherd. Notice now the party of the jubilant company in verses 6 and 7. Notice that the rejoicing shepherd doesn't return the rescued sheep to the flock from which it wandered. Before it was included with the other 99, no longer. Once rescued, the shepherd takes 
the sheep home with him. Now, home may refer to the church of God, or it may refer to heaven. You see in verses 7 and 10, or both. I suggest that it refers to both, since the church is the gateway to heaven, in the same way that repentance opens the door to eternal life. The sheep now lives forever with this shepherd. We read in Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23, to his believing readers, he writes, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to them, he's saying, now. You see, redeemed sinners are joined right now to the church militant, and they who are joined to the church militant are enrolled right now in the church triumphant. That's why we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. What a joyous homecoming for the shepherd and for the recovered sheep. The happy shepherd cannot contain his joy. He must share it with others. And so he calls together all his friends and neighbors. And at the sound of his rejoicing, the others are caught up and swept away with his joy. It's infectious. Verse 7 states, and verse 10 implies, that the place of this rejoicing is heaven. That's what Jesus is pointing to, but it's enjoyed in the church as well. But notice what we learn from these two verses. The celebrants include the holy angels, verse 10. But they're not the only ones who rejoice over the recovery of the lost. Notice the exact wording of verse 10. This joy is in the presence of the angels of God. So who else must be there? Well, we noted the angels. Who else? Who else? Well, it must include the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven. But this is not all. Who else? Who else is included in that holy rejoicing? In whose presence does this rejoicing take place? Well, most wonderful of all, of all brethren, it is that God himself rejoices over the repentance of lost sinners. That's Jesus' point. He doesn't just sit there like this. Oh, that's good. I mean, I knew it was going to happen. I decreed in eternity, and he came to faith, and one day he'll be gathered around the throne. Not at all. It's not the way I read my Bible. I say reverently that God expresses infinite holy ecstasy over repenting sinners. And this is beautifully pictured by the father who throws a party to celebrate the return of his lost son. Heaven, brethren, must be a place of rapturous joy. And notice, too, the implied solemn contrast in verse 7. There is great rejoicing in heaven over one repenting sinner, but there is no rejoicing over those who think they need no repentance. This is tragic. This verse does not suggest 
that there is a little rejoicing over the self-righteous as compared to great rejoicing over repentant sinners. The word more is found in many of our translations doesn't exist. I tell you that in the same way there will be more. And that's italicized in the New American Standard as well it should be. The the idea in verse 7 could be translated this way. I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, there's no rejoicing in heaven over those who feel that they are righteous in themselves and acknowledge no need of repentance. How could that make men and angels and God happy? That's a grief. You see, Luke presents a stark contrast between the high-spirited rejoicing of Christ and his penitent friends over the repentance of the lost and the glowering and griping of the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. He sets them apart from each other and he examines them. One group repents and rejoices. The other group doesn't repent and it doesn't rejoice. God rejoices over the one, but he doesn't rejoice over the other. Only those truly righteous who have tasted the Lord's mercies to sinners themselves are able to rejoice over the glorious conquest of the gospel and of God himself who sees the power of the gospel, sees the gospel as the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. He rejoices in the repentance of lost sinners. Those portrayed as the 99 sheep who need no repentance care nothing for the salvation of others, and worst of all, they care nothing for their own salvation. How unspeakably tragic is this? That brings us to a parting word. First of all, a word to Christ's recovered sheep. Notice three things. First of all, let us repent of any Pharisaic attitude toward other sinners. And I put that word other in there purposefully. We're saints, but we're sinning saints. Nothing is so unchristlike, nothing so stinks in the nostrils of God, I believe, as spiritual pride. And we're often guilty of that, are we not? The glorious Son of Man who stooped from heaven to save wicked men and women like us. He did so to deliver us from the wrath to come by bearing the Father's wrath for our sins. Let us ever remember who has made us to differ. What do we have that we have not received? It was nothing good in us, but it was sovereign mercy alone that sought us and called us and gave us new life when we were wayward, rebel, wandering sheep. We still have those seeds within us. Brethren, we are what we are by the grace of God. Let us never forget that. Let us continually live with a humbling sense of our own utter unworthiness 
of God's kindness. You see, only by continually nurturing these convictions will we avoid the proud attitude that looks down on others who need Christ so desperately, as we did, and we still do. Secondly, let us more actively seek lost sinners. If we can only see lost sinners as Jesus sees them, I dare say we would not be so backward in seeking them in the name of the Good Shepherd. We need to see them as never dying souls hastening into the judgment of God. Will they stand on the left of Christ or will they stand on the right of Christ? Let us ask the Lord to give us more of his searching spirit. He didn't merely put up with the lost. He welcomed them. And he did more than welcome them. He actively sought them. That is how the Lord saved us. And brethren, let us, like him, show ourselves the friend of sinners. Let us seek to know them. Let us invest ourselves in their lives. The first thing in getting to know them may not be to invite them to church. Hopefully that will come, but let us befriend them. Let us build a climate and a context in which we may share the most important thing of all, the reason for the hope that's within us. Let us befriend them that we might introduce them to the very best of friends. Thirdly, I speak to Christ's recovered sheep. Let us readily rejoice over God's rescue of lost sinners. How do we handle the news of somebody who was in darkness and now is in light, who was dead, and now he's alive? What, how do we respond to that? Oh, that's good. Now, can we enter in? We're to not only weep with those who weep, we're to what? We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Let us rejoice whenever we hear that the good shepherd may have reclaimed one of his lost sheep. Now, if we have reason to question the genuineness of their conversion, let us not become jaded. Let us pray with hope that the Lord will make them good ground hearers and their bare fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Let us pray for the evident fruits of repentance. Oh, let us not be naive, but instead let us be hopeful and prayerful. And I say to the degree that we are prayerful, we'll be hopeful. But let me speak to the 99 who feel no need of Christ. Know that you will never be found by God until you see yourself as a lost sinner. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as lost? Bruised and broken by the fall? Do you see yourself as a wayward, wandering sheep? Do you see yourself as a rebel, not God's way, but my way? Do you see yourself as basically good? Yeah, I can see why I might come to say bad people, but I'm not to be numbered among them. I'm religious. I go to church. I went to Sunday school. I was taught the catechism. I know all these things. Well, so are these scribes and Pharisees. They were the teachers in Israel. But they had not the root of the matter in them. They had a form of godliness without its power. They had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. So what about you, friend? How is it with you? Jesus saves only those who feel their misery and seek his mercy. 
He calls to all needy lost sheep. Do you hear his voice this morning? You may be sure that the good shepherd will respond to the desperate bleating of every lost sheep. You know a mother can hear her own child cry in the nursery. There might be a, a chorus of crying down there. But she knows her own child and her heart responds and she moves her feet and she goes and fetches it, raises it up from the floor, puts it in her bosom, calms its crying. The Lord knows your voice. He knows the voice of those who need Christ. He hears their bleating. Let nothing keep you from coming to him, the one who is the seeker and savior of lost sinners. So we sung last week these words, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream, I'll just clean myself up and then Jesus will receive me. No, he receives sinners. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. Tis the spirit's rising beam. The dungeon flamed with light. I woke, arose and followed thee. You have the promise of the good shepherd who calls you. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, what a message of encouragement for lost sheep. Oh, Lord, may we see ourselves as you see us. May we see ourselves as lost and undone that we were bruised and broken by the fall. We have been conceived as sinners. We went astray from the womb speaking lies. We have lived in wretched rebellion against you. We have thrust our fist into your kind face. Indeed, all the things that you've done for us should lead us to repentance. All the blessings of life Point us to a God who will give the greatest blessing, even salvation in Christ to all that call upon him, who call upon him in truth. And therefore we pray that you would, you would reach out and you would snatch lost sinners in this place and wherever the gospel is preached, make them trophies of your grace. Take lost sheep and enroll them in the kingdom of God that they might be under your tender care and feed upon your daily mercies until you come and you call them out of this world to be joined with their Savior above. Oh, glorify yourself in the salvation of sinners this day that the lost may be found and that the found might be following you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.